Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. If you have questions about our church or following Jesus, feel free to reach out to us at info at theplantchurch.org. Now, here's today's message. Last week, we started on a sermon series called Obstacles. Our our adversities are God's opportunities. How many love adversity? Anyone love adversity out there? If you do, you're sick, right? You're sick, right? But it's one of those things last week I really felt like, and I shared this, that in October that God was wanting us to do some shifting in our sermon series for what was supposed to happen in January. January is such a a really a profound moment where we're getting ready for what God has next for the new year. And I had shared last week that when we start a new year, we expect everything to be perfect. That for some reason, at 12 a.m. on the new year, someone presses a magical button and everything changes. Did anyone, did did that happen to anyone in this room? Anyone? Raise your hand, please. Right? Okay. No, no. Everyone said no, no. So you got to see the, the looks out there for that one. But what we do is we have these false anticipations, these false hopes. And so we've been talking about this whole idea by looking at the life of Joseph. Trials, obstacles, and how our obstacles are actually God's greatest opportunities. So let me ask you, how do you feel when you do everything right and nothing works out? How many of you like that? Anyone like that? Right? You like that? No, you don't. Oh, no, that's... Or are like you said, like, are like that. No, like that. I said like that. Like, how many of us like that? When everything we do right and all of a sudden nothing works out. You see, we have, this, we have this, this thought that if we do everything right, then God will make everything perfect, right? We really believe that that's what the Bible says. The Bible does not say that. Matter of fact, when you read the scriptures, you read about individuals that have gone through trial after trial after trial after trial. Have you ever read Hebrews 12, the hall of faith? And how each individual went through these massive trials. But it was through their trials that God showed up. Here's my challenge. Are we willing this year to embrace our trials Believing not that God is causing them, but rather God is using them to do his best and his deepest work in our lives. And when we have trials, it means we have temptations. Because we are tempted to figure out our own ways out of our circumstances. Let's pray. Father God, I want to ask you, I want to ask you to be present in this message. Holy Spirit, I want to ask you for clarity of thought. 
Holy Spirit, I want to ask you that this would be a new year, a new day, a new lens to look through our adversity, a new way to look through our trials, our obstacles. And Holy Spirit, I ask you that we would have the wisdom and even more so the humility to trust that in our adversity, you are both present and you are doing your best work. Holy Spirit, I ask you this morning for a shift in each of our perspectives of how our difficulties are not put on by you, but rather that you are present in them to show us how much we are dearly loved and how you will provide every opportunity to experience all that you have for us. And all God's people said, amen. We're going to read Genesis 39. Genesis 39. Now, before we get to Genesis 39, let me give you a little background. Last week, we began the, the study of Joseph. And last week was kind of one of those, like, I'm going to mess with your soul. We talked about family origin. How many of you thought about that during the week? Anyone did that mess with any of you last week? Like, like looking back on your childhood. And, and I always think about this. Um, please don't ever call me Robert, okay? Please don't ever call me Robert. Because whenever I'm going through a hard time, or I feel like I'm in trouble, and I hear the word Robert, I flash back to when I was 15 years old. There's only one person in the whole plant church that's allowed to call me Robert, and his name is Michael Herbst. And so we have a little joke. But the reality is, is that whenever we go through hardships, we kind of flash back to our childhood. And if I were to ask you the last time that you were reprimanded at work, or a conflict happened, or you weren't able to pay a bill, I'd say, so tell me what you're feeling right about now. What is that category of age that you are in? I bet you this. You'd say, I, I feel like I'm 15. I feel like I'm a 15-year-old kid, and I can't figure it out. And for some reason, something happened in our teens that even as adults, we, we go back to our family origin when we get stuck. And so we talked about family origin. We looked at Joseph's life. We looked at a, a, a young man who came from a very unique situation. He was his father's favorite. He was from a blended family. He lost two of the most influ, influential people in his life to death. He was then thrown into a ditch, which another word was dungeon. He had his special jacket stolen from him and ripped up. He was then sold into slavery by his siblings who were jealous. And then what we pick up in the passage is when Joseph was now a slave. So he went from being on the top of the hill, father's favorites, overseeing his father's kingdom, to now he's a slave in Egypt. Genesis 39, and I'm going to be reading a lot. 
When Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders, he was purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. Potiphar was captain of the guard for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Now, I'm going to be reading a lot right now. But what I want you to remember as I'm reading is how many times the scriptures say that the Lord was with Joseph. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar. So he soon made Joseph his personal assistant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. From the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. All his household affairs ran smoothly and his crops and livestock flourished. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. With Joseph there, he didn't worry about anything. I love this. Except what kind of food to eat. Joseph was a very handsome and well-built man. And Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. But Joseph refused. Look he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you. Because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. She kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her, and he kept out of her way as much as possible. There's a little lesson in there. One day, however, no one else was around when he went in to do his work. She came and grabbed him by his cloak, demanding, come on, sleep with me. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. When she saw that she was holding his cloak and he had fled, she called out to her servants. Soon all the men came running. Look, she said, my husband has brought this Hebrew slave here to make fools of us. He came into my room to rape me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream, he ran outside and got away, but he left his cloak behind with me. She kept the cloak with her until her husband came home. Then she told him her story. That Hebrew slave you've brought into our home Try to come in and fool around with me, she said. But when I screamed, he ran outside, leaving his cloak with me. 
before I finish reading this little passage, at the end of the service, there were so many people saying, I didn't realize how much detail was in that passage. It's pretty detailed. Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph and threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held. And there he remained. But, but, the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. The warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord, the Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. Pretty intense passage. When you look at this passage, there's actually three big movements. The first movement is verses one through six, through six, success and service. How many of us want success in what we serve? Anyone? How many of us want to really know that, that what I'm doing has value, has meaning? How many of us, when we go to work, we want to know that, that, that like all of the energy All of the effort is paying off. And so Joseph was a slave. And he became a slave to Potiphar. Potiphar was one of the highest ranking individuals in all of Egypt. And everything Joseph did succeeded. You see, there's a pattern. When you look back at Joseph as a young man, everything Joseph did succeeded. And now, as a slave, everything Joseph was doing was succeeding. There's something really deep in Joseph that no matter what environment he was put in, he was going to thrive. And as he was working, Potiphar saw that everything Joseph touched would flourish his crops, his livestock. It even talks about the organization of his home. Everything was working smoother than ever. And I love what it said, that Joseph had command of everything except one thing, that which Potiphar ate, because he liked Chick-fil-A way too much. And Joseph wanted him to be healthy. And so Potiphar loved him. He appreciated him. Because everyone saw Potiphar being successful through Joseph's success. Pretty cool. I think this is somewhere where we just want to kind of like stop and say, can we we just stop here, Pastor Rob? Can you just teach me how to be successful all the time? Now, let's watch the next section. Here's the second section, the one we hate the most. Verses 7 through 18, the interaction with Potiphar's wife. So what had happened was, and it wasn't Joseph's fault, he was young, he was handsome, he was well-built. And Potiphar's wife 
took a liking to Joseph. And she saw how her husband was thriving because of this individual. So Potiphar's wife says, and I want that. I want him. And it says multiple times that Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph into sleeping with her. You see, temptation. Temptation is what? To be enticed to do something that you are not supposed to have. Anyone ever been tempted before? A couple people. One, two. But, but, but think about it. Isn't that what temptation is? To be enticed into something that you are not allowed to have. And, and I think we got to be really honest. Do you think Joseph wanted to sleep with Potiphar's wife? Do you think Joseph was wrestling in his soul? Joseph, it says, was a young man. Do you think that Joseph would have had a pull to be given into temptation? Should we ask the young men in this room? (laughs) But think about that. Each one of us has a pull. And I find it interesting that when we talk about temptation, we think about this as being something such a far cry. And Joseph was probably such a a holy young man that, that no temptation would have ever been a thought to him. But what are we tempted by? We're tempted by that which the enemy knows he can hook us with. And so I honestly believe what this temptation is, the enemy knew that if he was going to get at Joseph, it was going to be through Potiphar's wife. You see, we got to be careful. We got to check our hearts. Because that which we are drawn to in an unhealthy nature is probably a dark spot in our soul that God wants us to deal with. You hear what I'm saying? If we have this unhealthy pull to do something that we know that we're not supposed to, God is probably screaming at us, check what drives that. But for Joseph, he was checking it. And he knew that he could not give in to Potiphar's wife. I love what Joseph says. He didn't give in to the temptation for two reasons. And, and I actually love what he said first. He says that he would not give in to the temptation because he did not want to dishonor Potiphar. That's pretty manly. Do I get an amen for that? Seriously, that's pretty manly. Like that's, that's next level. He didn't give a holy answer at first. He gave a manly, godly response. I don't want to offend your husband. And as he was pushed more and more, and he says, and I will not offend my God. And yet, as he was being enticed, the more he pushed her away, the more she wanted him. And then all of a sudden, there was this moment where they were both alone in the house, and she grabbed him. She grabbed him. I mean, talk about a Netflix series. She grabbed him. And he's just like, I'm out. And he ran, and she grabbed the cloak. You see, there's symbolism to this cloak. 
You remember last week we talked about the jacket of many colors? That jacket was a sign of identity. That jacket was something his father said, like, like you're my favorite. This cloak that, that Joseph would have worn was says, I'm Potiphar's favorite. I'm Potiphar's main person. I'm the one that when I walk in and people have never recognized me before and I'm wearing that cloak, I walk in and guess what? I'm the shing dingy. Like literally people know who I am just by that cloak that I am wearing. And he pulls it off, it's pulled off him and he runs. You see some symbolism that's going on here? And when he runs, Potiphar's wife screams and she brings in all the men of the house. And she lies. She tries to indict Joseph for an action he didn't even commit. And then she brings Potiphar in. And Potiphar's not going to not believe his wife. Even if he wanted to believe Joseph, even if he was questioning it deep down in his soul, he was trusting his wife. And because of that, in his anger, he threw Joseph in prison again. Here's the interesting thing. Last week, we talked about the pit, the cistern. Anyone remember the name that was given for the pit and the cistern? Anyone remember? Dungeon. Remember that? Remember the word dungeon? So the word prison, in this part, is dungeon again. And you start seeing correlations. Have you ever seen in your life that as you go through trials, there's sometimes really big correlations? Like, I I feel like I've been through this again, just just a different place, a different season, a different age. And there's all these correlations that Joseph is saying, seriously? The jacket again? Seriously? Another dungeon? And he's thrown into the dungeon. And when he's thrown into the dungeon, then all what we see is that we see Joseph, two things are happening. He's having to continue to suffer. He's back at the bottom. But there was something in Joseph that he truly believed that nothing was going to change who he is as a man. And in his suffering, he continues to do that which he did at his house. He continued to do that which he did in Potiphar's home. And he continued to be the man that God had called him to be in the dungeon once again. And it says I'm sorry to get emotional. And God was with him. How powerful is that? Have you ever, ever really gone through trials and you've chosen the right way? And you can honestly look back and in that moment, I'm a baby, huh? And you can honestly see that God is with you. That's really powerful. 
You, you see, when we study the, the, this passage of Joseph, we love just to get caught up with like Potiphar's wife. Like, like we love the Netflix version of the Bible. Like that's a portion of it. What was going on here was, was how what was Joseph dealing with another obstacle that's thrown at him? Because every single obstacle, it says, God is with him. I, I think that's the biggest problem for Christians. Is they literally believe that the moment I become a Christian, everything goes away. No, it gets harder because you recognize you're human, you recognize you're broken, you recognize you can't get through it, only God can, and then you got something called the target on you. Because the enemy has one desire, to steal your joy, to kill the salvation that was birthed in you. Steal, kill, and destroy everything that you love and you value. And yet, when we are followers of Jesus and we wait in the midst of our trials, things don't die. They come to life. And every time Joseph went into a cistern, a prison, a dungeon, something was birthed in him. But that's easy to see as we look backwards. You see, our emotions are our red flags that God is warning us with. If you put that slide up, our emotions. Emotions are God's red flags of warning. Our emotions are there to protect us. Did you know that? You're like, am I going to a psychology class or to a, a, a church sermon? Our emotions are God's red flags. And we don't talk about our emotions too much, or maybe we talk about them too much. But there are three major emotions that we all go through. So, so let me ask you a question. When I was reading through the, the Joseph narrative, did anyone get angry? Anyone get angry? Anyone get a little anxious? Right? Anyone like have a little, little, little place of depression at the very, very end? Those are three major emotions that each of us will experience in some situation. You see, for us who are, we'll call them Gen Xers, we weren't allowed to have anxiety. Do I get an amen, all you Gen Xers? All you Gen Xers, do I get an amen? We were not allowed to have anxiety. We didn't know what anxiety was, but we've learned what it is. So let's look at these three emotions. Anger. Anger signals a blocked goal, right? When do we get angry? That which we want to accomplish is not happening. Anger is often about control or the lack of it. Anyone have a tribulation, a trial that you have been in and you just can't control it and all you do is get angry and angry and angry and solely just raise their hand, right? It's this idea of a lack of control. But what about anxiety? Anxiety signals an uncertain goal. Think about this. You often feel anxious when your goal is uncertain. You are hoping something will happen, but you have no guarantee it will. 
You control some of the factors, but you are unable to control all of them. You think Joseph got a little angry? You think Joseph battled with a little bit of anxiety? So if you go through your trials, let me ask you, out of these two emotions, which one usually jumps out at you more? All of us angry men, let's raise our hands. Anyone get angry? Right? It's a control thing. What about anxiety? How many of you allow anxiety to be that one thing that just, like that uncertainty, that uncertainty, that uncertainty, and what happens is that you get so caught in your uncertainty that it actually paralyzes you from even to recognize the goal that you want to accomplish. But then there's one other emotion. Depression signals an impossible goal. When you get to the place and you say, that can never happen, we protect ourselves by becoming depressed. And in some ways, if we want to be fair to ourselves in the way that we are made up in our humanness, anxiety, anger, and depression are ways that we use as self-protection. You ever think of it that way? And here's the thing with depression. For some, it is completely chemical. Completely chemical. But when it's not chemical, and it is due to circumstances that are so impossible to pull yourself out of, the emotion that rears its head is depression. So if you were Joseph, and you start seeing his life, do you think at some point he was experiencing all three? Anxiety. Every time something good goes on, what's going to happen? Something bad. Right? When someone struggles with anxiety, their, their concern is, hey, even if I give all of my effort and do everything right, you know what? Something bad can happen. If you know anxiety, you know what I'm talking about. Anger. The idea of controlling it. That every time he gets out of a situation and he's doing everything right so nothing will go wrong and then all of a sudden this woman comes and defames his character, what do you think would happen to him? He became angry or should have been angry at who? Potiphar's wife. At Potiphar for not believing him. At the guards who knew him and probably saw her flirting with him. And then on top of it, angry at who? Angry at God for allowing him to be in that situation. And then depression. You see, depression is like a prison. Depression is like a dungeon. And for Joseph, when he was in that dungeon... When it seemed like, here we go again. I've lost it all. Is it even worth trying again? Let me ask you. Has there ever been something that you've worked so hard for and it failed? You got another opportunity and you worked so hard at it and it failed? And you were given a third opportunity and you had a crossroads. Am I going to work so hard or am I going to believe an outcome that I don't even know 
if or when it may happen. Think about that. You see, trials, we all go through them. Temptations, they're all thrown at us. This book that I was reading this summer was called The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. And I love this book because every single chapter talked about individuals throughout history who were overcoming the adversities that were thrown at them. And some of the examples that were given were adversities that were thrown at them where they were wrongfully accused and they had a decision how to handle it. You see, it's not whether or not we're going to be thrown adversity in our lives. The question is, how will we handle ourselves in the midst of our adversities? Let me give you two examples. Reuben the Hurricane Carter. How many of you are Bob Dylan fans out there? Anyone like Bob Dylan out there, right? There's a story of a hurricane. Remember that song? This song was about Reuben Carter. Reuben Carter was a professional middleweight boxer in the 1960s. And he and another person were wrongfully accused of murder. They were wrongfully accused because of their race. And they were thrown in jail for over 20 years. And and I love reading about how Reuben went to jail. When he was wrongfully accused, you know what he did? He got his best watch and he put it on. He found his favorite suit and he put it on. He found his favorite pair of dress-up shoes and and he put it on his feet and he says, I'm going to enter prison an innocent man and I'm going to live as an innocent man in prison because I was never the one who committed that crime. And as he sat in prison for over 10 years, he wrote a book called The 16th Round. And he wrote this book called The 16th Round and he sent it to Bob Dylan and that's how Bob Dylan wrote the song The Hurricane. 10 years later, think about that, 20 years, he was in prison. And after 20 years, the courts reheard his case. And he was let out as an innocent man. And all the time in prison, he would never allow himself to be looked at as a criminal. Let me give you another story of a woman. This one's horrific. Tammy Marquette. Tammy Marquette was a mom in Canada, and she was accused of murdering her toddler. Her toddler actually died of an epileptic seizure, but there is a pathologist who who is known to be crooked and just just a warped individual. Again, on Netflix, we we see series about these type of people. And, And he insisted that this woman suffocated Her baby. Imagine that. 11 years she was thrown in jail. And while she was in jail for 11 years, her two other sons were taken from her and put in child custody. Imagine that. How would you handle that? Now, those are big, big trials. Those are big, big tribulations. You see, the question is, not the type of tribulation we face, but how do we handle ourselves in the midst 
of the trials we are walking through. You see, I, I always think about why do people write books about people? They write books about people because these are individuals that, that did it right. Amen? These are individuals that, that handle themselves in such a way that they literally are an example to others that as you are being wrongfully accused, do not let anyone steal who you are as a human being. It's a story of Joseph. If Joseph gave into Potiphar's wife, would he be in the Bible? No. Right? No. God was at work. And every step of the way, God was shaping who Joseph was and who Joseph would be because God had to find the right person who would be able to lead his people in a season in which the world had never, ever experienced before. You see, there was going to be a day that Joseph was going to basically lead Egypt through one of the worst famines the world had ever seen. And so every trial, every tribulation, every temptation that Joseph would go through, God was setting him up to do his deepest and best work. You see, here's what Joseph believed. Joseph believed this. Joseph believed that God had a divine purpose in his life. You know what I believe about you? God has a divine purpose for each of your lives. You want to know why I know that? Because you're here today. And it's not about being at the plant, but you've come into a place, a church, and you said, God, I'm humbling myself to hear what you want to have spoken to me because I believe that in the midst of everything going on in my life, you created me for purpose. So let me be an annoying pastor. Turn to the person next to you and say, God. Okay, that's really bad. Seriously? <laughs> Only, only Tony did it. Out of the whole church, only Tony did it. Out of the whole church. Thank you, Tony. Say this. God has a divine plan for your life. Now say this. You ain't hearing me. Now you got to say, give a little oomph to it. You ain't hearing me. God has a divine plan for your life. And there's someone here saying, I'm never coming back. <laughs> so sanctification is this. Sanctification is God's deep work in our lives to become the person he created us to be. I believe this. I believe that when God forms us in our mother's womb, it's through the divine. It's through the divine. And that every child conceived, the divine is at work. And when we come to faith in Jesus, we are saying, Jesus, do your divine best. You see, this is what sanctification is. Sanctification is the everyday work of the Holy Spirit in an individual's life. 
And sanctification happens in two ways. One, in the everyday. It's called the progressive work of the Holy Spirit. That means in, in, in the norm of your day. It's, it's that boring Saturday, the Holy Spirit's doing something. It's that Monday through Friday when you show up to work every single day and you do the same thing. You set the coffee at night, you wake up and you drink your coffee and you go to work and, and God is just nudging you, the little nudges throughout the day. But also, sanctification takes place in our crises. Crises. In our most difficult times, God is at work. And when we go through difficulties, we must understand this, that God is more present than ever. He is not leaving you alone. He is not tormenting you. He is not trying to throw you under the bus. But every single crisis that you walk through, God is present. How do I know that? Because when I look at Genesis 37, Genesis 38, Genesis 39, everything Joseph went through, God was with him. Watch this. I'm going to throw it up back here. Crisis either rejects God's presence to be at work or allows God's best work to be done. Amen? When you are going through a crisis, you either push God as far away as possible and you blame God for what you're going through and it's his fault and you won't trust him because in your anger, you will control your outcome. Crisis pushes the presence of God away. And in your own anger, you become anxious. And in your anxiety, you don't trust God in the uncertainties. Crisis could cause you to push God's presence so far away that you are unable to see that, that this is the next step to God's best plan and the depression seeps in and you believe that you are living in a place of isolation. Or, or, crisis allows God's best work to be done in your life. Or you allow crisis to be God's best work to be done in your life. We got to get away from foo-foo Christianity. Amen? I mean, we talk about this foo-foo Christianity that's about this deep. Everything's supposed to work out my way. God, I have a plan and God's going to fulfill it. No. You see, we all experience crises. The question is, do we allow God to be present in our crises to do his best work? Romans 5. We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials. So why does Paul say we can rejoice, too, when we run into trials? Because he's saying, of course you're going to rejoice when everything is going really, really well. He's saying you can rejoice, too, 
when you run into problems and trials. For we know that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confidence, hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he's given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. I find it funny how like today I've been like overly emotional like during worship. And I'll tell you why. Because I see God present in all of my trials. I really do. I hate trials. I hate tribulations. But for some reason, as a young man, I had to come to grips with the idea that God is for me. And if God is for me, nothing can stand against me. And I look at Joseph's life, and he believed in the divine work of God so much in his life that he would not give in to that temptation. He was tempted multiple times to sleep with Potiphar's wife. And he chose not to. He was a man among men. I look at Joseph's life and I see how he believed in his heart that all God was doing was he was strengthening him and building him and he was still believing in that dreams that God gave him three years prior to. I look at Joseph and say, wow, how did Joseph stay right where he was continuously? Because he believed that the best was not yet to come, but rather that God's presence was right with him now. And if God's presence is with you right now, there's nothing better. There's nothing better. We have this lie that, that, that we're running to a promised land, that we have to find this place. Yes, God will get you there in his due time, but too many people miss out on all that God is doing in the midst of it. And the one thing that Moses did wrong was he looked too far ahead. And he missed out that the promise was right in front of but Joseph understood that. That God's promises are yes and amen. And God's spirit is with him no matter if he's in a dungeon or if he's running Potiphar's house. And we have to come to a grips to understand that God's presence is with us always. And sometimes we recognize his presence more than ever in our deepest in darkest moments. Do you notice how every, every story that I share about when God is most present, it wasn't speaking at a college. It wasn't achievements of, uh, of grandiose that maybe I've accomplished. It was always in my deepest moments when God's spirit is most. 
Your trials are God's opportunities to do his best work in your life. That's it. And one day you're going to look back and you're just going to see the hand of God. And the hand of God is most prevalent in those darkest dungeons you've walked through. So let me wrap up like this. I usually do like four points, four applications, four things you can do. Let me give you some reflections. One, where's God? I can't tell you how many times people say, where's God? I lost my job. Where's God? My marriage is falling apart. Where's God? My kids are going off the rails. Where's God? I'm sick. Where's God? And all I say is this. God is right there in it with you. We believe this lie that we're not going to go through hard times. Really? Have four kids. Seriously. Really? Live in Bergen County. Right? We are all going to go through trials. And God is in every single trial. The question is, how do you handle your trials? How do you handle your trials? You see, what I love about Joseph was this. In his trials, he was tempted. And he didn't give in. So when you're going through difficulties and things aren't working out the way that you want them to work out or you have planned them out or you have life planned them out and you've mapped them out and they're not going in the direction you want and temptation comes, what do you do? Do you give in? Or do you trust God and say, God, why am I having this temptation? Why is this too much? Why do I have this this unhealthy pull to be enticed to have something that's not mine? That's a good question. That's a good question. Two, what happens in your, in your trials when you do the right thing and you are putting yourself in compromising situations? Because sometimes doing the right thing gets you in trouble. How do you handle that? How do you handle your trials That when you are asked to do the wrong thing, which will advance you, are you willing to do the right thing and miss out on that advancement? Trusting that God has something better for you. Seriously. I hate when people say, you know, growing up in Bergen County, you have to cheat to get ahead. It's true. That's what people say all the time. It's white lies. Dude, a lie's a lie. Right? Is that true? Is that like a white witch is a good witch? Dude, there's no such thing as a good witch. No, a white lie's a lie. My question is this. When you are put in a situation to have to do the wrong thing to advance, do you choose to do the right thing? You see, what we learned from Joseph is, yes, you may be penalized, but God's got your back. What about this? Character. Character is all you have. 
Your integrity is all you have. At the end of the day, you're going to stand before God and God's not going to be like, hey, what did you do? It's going to be about who you are. Who are you? Who are you when no one is looking? Because at the end of the day, all we have to hold on to is our integrity. And it's in our trials that our integrity is called into questioned and challenged. And God says, be men and women of integrity and watch what I do. Not what I will do, but watch what I do. And lastly, do you actually believe that God is the one who elevates you? Do you actually believe that it's God who is the one who elevates you? Because what I love at the end of Genesis 39 is that Joseph is back in the prison and he continues to be the man that God has called him to do. And guess what God does even in the prison? It says he elevates him. Do you know that's the word that he uses? And he elevates Joseph. Do you actually believe that in your integrity, it's God who does the elevating? Again, we will all go through trials. The question is, how do we handle them? May I have a communion cup? Talk about trials. See, we read about Jesus. And Jesus had one goal, one mission, one purpose. To save the world from its sin. That's it. That was the only job Jesus was called to. Yes, he healed. Yes, he delivered. Yes, he did the supernatural. But everything was contingent on going to the cross obediently. And Jesus took the bread and he said, this is my body. Let me retranslate it. And this is my trial. This is my trial. Broken for you. Let's eat together. And then Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant. My Holy Spirit poured out for all. Let me translate it. And this is my path to victory through your trials given to each one of you. It is the Holy Spirit who gives you victory through your trials and in your child trials as he is present with you. Let's drink. Thanks so much for joining us today. If this podcast has been helpful for you to know Jesus and make him known, then check out our website for more sermons and other resources, theplantchurch.org.